The Savior Jesus Christ spent his earthly ministry teaching of his healing and redemptive power. On one occasion, in Luke chapter 15 in the New Testament, he was actually criticized for eating and spending time with sinners. The Savior used this criticism as an opportunity to teach us all how to respond to those who have lost their way. He replied to us, to his critics, by asking them two important questions. What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? What woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? The Savior then teaches the parable of the prodigal son. This parable isn't about one hundred sheep or ten pieces of silver. It is about one precious son who is lost. Through the parable, what does the Savior teach us about how to respond when a family member loses his or her way? The prodigal son informs his father that he wants his inheritance now. He wants to leave the safety of his home and his family and seek after worldly pursuits. Please note that in the Savior's parable, the father lovingly responds by giving the son his inheritance and letting him go. Certainly, the father must have done everything he could to convince the son to stay. However, once the adult son makes his choice, the wise father lets him go. The father then demonstrates sincere love, and he watches and he waits. My family had a similar experience. My two faithful brothers, wonderful sister, and I were raised by exemplary parents. We were taught the gospel in our home. We successfully made it to adulthood, and all four of us were sealed in the temple to our spouses. However, in 1994, our sister Susan became disenchanted with the Church and some of its teachings. She was persuaded by those who mocked and criticized the early leaders of the Church. She allowed her faith in living prophets and apostles to diminish. Over time, her doubts overcame her faith, and she chose to leave the Church. Susan has given me permission to share her story with the hope that it might help others. My brothers and I and our widowed mother were devastated. We couldn't imagine what possibly could have led her to abandon her faith. My sister's choices seemed to be breaking our mother's heart. My brothers and I had served as bishops and quorum presidents, and we had experienced the joy of success with ward and quorum members as we left the ninety and nine and went after the one. However, with our sister, our persistent efforts to rescue her and to invite her back only pushed her further and further away. As we sought heavenly guidance as to how we might properly respond to her, it became evident that we had to follow the example of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Susan had made her choice, and we had to figuratively let her go, but not without her knowing and feeling our sincere love for her. And so, with renewed love and kindness, we watched and we waited. My mother never stopped loving and caring for Susan. Every time my mother attended the temple, she placed Susan's name on the prayer roll and never lost hope. My older brother and his wife, who lived closest to Susan in California, invited her to all family events. They prepared dinner in their home each year on Susan's birthday. They made sure they were always in touch with her and that she knew of their genuine love for her. My younger brother and his wife reached out to Susan's children in Utah and cared for them 
and loved them. They made sure that her children were always invited to family gatherings, and when it came time for Susan's granddaughter to be baptized, my brother was there to perform the ordinance. Susan also had loving home teachers and visiting teachers who never gave up. As our children went on missions and were married, Susan was invited and attended those family celebrations. We tried diligently to create family events so that Susan and her children could be with us and they would know that we loved them and that they were part of our family. As Susan received an advanced degree at a California university, we were all there to support her at her graduation. Although we could not embrace all of her choices, we could certainly embrace her. We loved, we watched, and we waited. In 2006, after 12 years had passed since Susan left the Church, our daughter Katie moved with her husband to California so he could attend law school. They were in the same city as Susan. This young couple looked to their Aunt Susan for help and support, and they loved her. Susan helped care for our two-year-old granddaughter Lucy, and Susan found herself helping Lucy with her nightly prayers. Katie called me one day and asked if I ever thought Susan would come back to the Church. I assured her that I felt she would and that we needed to continue to be patient. As another three years passed, with continued love, we watched and we waited. Six years ago this weekend, my wife Marcy and I were sitting on the front row of this conference center. I was to be sustained as a new general authority that day. Marcia, who was always in touch with the Spirit, had written a note to me that read, I think it's time for Susan to come back. My daughter Katie suggested that I leave and call Susan to invite her to watch General Conference that day. Prompted by these two great women, I walked to the foyer and called my sister. I got her voicemail and simply invited her to watch that session of General Conference. She got the message. To our delight, she felt impressed to watch all the sessions of conference. She heard from prophets and apostles she had loved in earlier years. She found new names she had not heard before, like President Uchtdorf and Elders Bednar, Cook, Christofferson, and Anderson. (laughs) During this and other unique heaven-sent experiences, my sister, like the prodigal son, came to herself. The words of prophets and apostles and the love of her family moved her to turn and begin the walk back home. After 15 years, our daughter and sister, who was lost, had been found. The watch and the wait were over. Susan describes this experience just as Lehi described it in the Book of Mormon. She let go of the iron rod and found herself in a mist of darkness. She states that she did not know she was lost until her faith was reawakened by the light of Christ, which brightly magnified the stark contrast between what she was experiencing in the world and what the Lord and her family were offering. A miracle has occurred over the past six years. Susan has a renewed testimony of the Book of Mormon. She has received her temple recommend. She has served as an ordinance worker in the temple, and she currently teaches the gospel doctrine class in her ward. The windows of heaven have opened to her and her grandchildren, and although there have been difficult consequences, it feels as if she never left. Some of you, like the Nielsen family, 
have family members who have temporarily lost their way. The Savior's instruction to all who have 100 sheep is to leave the 90 and 9 and go after and rescue the one. His instruction to those who have 10 pieces of silver is to lose, and if you lose one, is to search until you find it. But when the lost one is your son or your daughter, your brother or your sister, and he or she has chosen to leave, we learned in our family that after all we can do, we love that person with all of our hearts, and we watch, we pray, and we wait for the Lord's hand to be revealed. Perhaps the most important lesson the Lord taught me through this process happened during our family scripture study after my sister left the Church. Our son David was reading as we studied together Luke 15. As he read the parable of the prodigal son, I heard it differently that day than I had ever heard it before. For some reason, I had always related to the son who stayed home. As David read that morning, I realized that in some ways I was the prodigal son. All of us fall short of the glory of the Father. All of us need the Savior's atonement to heal us. All of us are lost and need to be found. This revelation that day helped me know that my sister and I both needed the Savior's love and His atonement. Susan and I were actually on the same path back home. The Savior's words in the parable as He describes The father greeting his prodigal son are powerful, and I believe maybe the description of the experience you and I will have with the father when we return to our heavenly home. They teach us of a father who loves, waits, and watches. These are the words of the Savior. When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. May you and I receive the revelation to know how to best approach those in our lives who are lost and, when necessary, to have the patience and love of our Father in Heaven and His Son as we love, watch, and wait for the prodigal. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, Elder Nielsen for the remarkably personal candor of that remarkable counsel. Without safety ropes or harnesses or climbing gear of any kind, two brothers, Jimmy, aged 14, and John, aged 19, though that's not their real names, attempted to scale a sheer canyon wall in Snow Canyon State Park in my native southern Utah. Near the top of their laborious climb, they discovered that a protruding ledge denied them their final few feet of ascent. They could not get over it, but neither could they now retreat from it. They were stranded. After careful maneuvering, John, the older, found enough footing to boost his younger brother to safety on the top of the ledge. But there was no way to lift himself. The more he strained to find finger or foot leverage, the more his muscles began to cramp. 
panic started to sweep over him, and he began to fear for his life. Unable to hold on much longer, John decided his only option was to try to jump vertically in an effort to grab the top of the overhanging ledge. If successful, he might, by his considerable arm strength, pull himself to safety. In his own words, he said, Prior to my jump, I told Jimmy to go search for a tree branch strong enough to extend down to me, although I knew there was nothing of the kind on that rocky summit. It was only a desperate ruse. If my jump failed, the least I could do was make certain my little brother did not see me falling to my death. Giving him enough time to be out of sight, I said my last prayer that I wanted my family to know I loved them and that Jimmy could make it home safely on his own. Then I leapt. There was enough adrenaline in my spring that the jump extended my arms above the ledge almost to my elbows. But as I slapped my hands down on the surface, I felt nothing, nothing but loose sand on flat stone. I can still remember the gritty sensation, he says, of hanging there with nothing to hold on to. No lip, no ridge, nothing to grab or grasp. I felt my fingers begin to recede slowly over the sandy surface. I knew my life was over. But then suddenly, like a lightning strike in a summer storm, two hands shot out from somewhere above the edge of the cliff, grabbing my wrists with a strength and a determination that belied their size. My faithful little brother had not gone looking for any fictitious tree branch. Guessing exactly what I was planning to do, he had never moved an inch. He had simply waited, silently, almost breathlessly, knowing full well I would be foolish enough to try to make that jump. When I did, he grabbed me. He held me. And he refused to let me fall. Those strong brotherly arms saved my life that day as I dangled helplessly above what surely would have been certain death. My beloved brothers and sisters, today is Easter Sunday. Although we should always remember, we promise in our weekly sacramental prayer that we will, 
Nevertheless, this is the most sacred day of the year for special remembrance of brotherly hands and determined arms that reached into the very abyss of death to save us from our fallings and our failings, from our sorrows and from our sins. Against the background of this story reported to me by John's and Jimmy's family, I express my gratitude for the atonement and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge events in the divine plan of God that led up to and give meaning to the love Jesus offers us. In our increasingly secular society, it is as uncommon as it is unfashionable to speak of Adam and Eve or the Garden of Eden or a fortunate fall into mortality. Nevertheless, the simple truth is that we cannot fully comprehend the atonement and resurrection of Christ and we will not adequately appreciate the unique purpose of his birth or his death. In other words, there's no way to truly celebrate Christmas or Easter without understanding that there was an actual Adam and Eve who fell from an actual Eden with all the consequences that fall carried with it. I do not know the details of what happened on this planet before that. But I do know these two were created under the divine hand of God, that for a time they lived alone in a paradisical setting where there was neither human death nor future family, and that through a sequence of choices they transgressed a commandment of God which required that they leave their garden setting but which allowed them to have children before facing physical death. To add further sorrow and complexity to their circumstance, their transgression had spiritual consequences as well, cutting them off from the presence of God forever. Because we were then born into that fallen world, and because we too would transgress the laws of God, we also were sentenced to the same penalties that Adam and Eve faced. What a plight! The entire human race in freefall. Every man, woman, and child in it physically tumbling toward permanent death, spiritually plunging toward eternal anguish. Is that what life was meant to be? Is this the grand finale of the human experience? Are we all just hanging in a cold canyon somewhere in an indifferent universe? Each of us searching for a toehold, each of us seeking for something to help, something to grip, with nothing but the feeling of sand sliding under our fingers. Nothing to save us. Nothing to hold on to, much less anything to hold on to us.
is our only purpose in life an empty existential exercise, simply to leap as high as we can, hang on for our prescribed threescore years and ten, and then fail, then fall, and keep falling forever? The answer to those questions is an unequivocal and eternal no. With prophets ancient and modern, I testify that all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Thus, from the moment those first parents stepped out of the Garden of Eden, the God and Father of us all, anticipating Adam and Eve's decision, dispatched the very angels of heaven to declare to them and down through time to us that the entire sequence was designed for our eternal happiness. It was part of his divine plan which provided for a Savior, the very Son of God himself, another Adam, the Apostle Paul would call him, who would come in the meridian of time to atone for the first Adam's transgression. That atonement would achieve complete victory over physical death, unconditionally granting resurrection to every person who has been born or ever will be born into this world. Mercifully, it would also provide forgiveness for the personal sins of all, from Adam to the end of the world conditioned upon repentance and obedience to divine commandments. As one of his ordained witnesses, I declare this Easter morning that Jesus of Nazareth was and is that Savior of the world, the last Adam, the author and finisher of our faith, the Alpha and Omega, of eternal life. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And from the prophet patriarch Lehi, Adam fell that men might be. And the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. Most thoroughly of all, the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob, taught as part of a two-day sermon on the atonement of Jesus Christ that the resurrection must come by reason of the fall. So today, we celebrate the gift of victory over every fall we've ever experienced Every sorrow we've ever known, every discouragement we've ever had, every fear we've ever faced, to say nothing of resurrection from death and forgiveness for our sins. That victory is available to us because of events that transpired on a weekend precisely like this more than two millennia ago in Jerusalem.
beginning in the spiritual anguish of the Garden of Gethsemane, moving to the crucifixion on a cross at Calvary, and concluding on a beautiful Sunday morning inside a donated tomb, a sinless, pure, and holy man, the very Son of God himself, did what no other deceased person had ever done nor ever could do. Under his own power, he rose from death, never to have his body separated from his spirit again. Of his own volition, he shed the burial linen with which he had been bound, carefully putting the burial napkin that had been placed over his face in a place by itself, the scripture says. That first Easter sequence of atonement and resurrection constitutes the most consequential moment, the most generous gift, the most excruciating pain, and the most majestic manifestation of pure love ever to be demonstrated in the history of this world. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, suffered, died, and rose from death in order that he could, like lightning in a summer storm, grasp us as we fell, held us with his might, and through our obedience to his commandments, lift us to eternal life. This Easter, I thank him and the Father who gave him to us that Jesus still stands triumphant over death although he stands on wounded feet. This Easter, I thank him and the Father who gave him to us that he still extends unending grace although he extends it with pierced palms and scarred wrists. This Easter, I thank him and the Father who gave him to us that we can sing before a sweat-stained garden, a nail-driven cross, and a gloriously empty tomb. How great, how glorious, how complete. Redemption's grand design where justice, love, and mercy meet in harmony divine in the sacred name of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
We are grateful to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir for the beautiful music they have provided this morning. Our concluding speaker for this session will be President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, Second Counselor in the First Presidency. Following his remarks, the choir will close this meeting by singing, Christ the Lord is risen today. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Kevin S. Hamilton of the Seventy. President Monson, thank you for announcing those three new temples in such marvelous locations. President, we love and sustain you with all our hearts. And our dear brothers and sisters, dear friends, please have a wonderful and happy Easter Sunday, all of you. On Easter Sunday, we celebrate. We celebrate the most long-awaited and glorious event in the history of the world. It is the day that changed everything. On that day, my life changed. Your life changed. The destiny of all of God's children changed. On that blessed day, the Savior of mankind, who had taken upon himself the chains of sin and death that held us captive, burst those chains and set us free. Because of the sacrifice of our beloved Redeemer, death has no sting. The grave has no victory. Satan has no lasting power. And we are begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Truly, the Apostle Paul was correct when he said, we can find comfort one another with these words. We often speak of the Savior's atonement, and rightly so. In Jacob's words, why not speak of the atonement of Christ and attain a perfect knowledge of him? But as we talk of Christ, rejoice in Christ, preach of Christ and prophesy of Christ at every opportunity, we must never lose our sense of awe and profound gratitude for the eternal sacrifice of the Son of God. The Savior's atonement cannot become commonplace in our teaching, our conversation, or in our hearts. It is sacred and it is holy. For it was through this great and last sacrifice that Jesus the Christ brought salvation to all those who shall believe in his name. I marvel to think that the Son of God would condescend to save us as imperfect, impure, mistake-prone, and ungrateful as we often are. I have tried to understand the Savior's atonement with my finite mind. And the only explanation I come up with is 
God loves us deeply, perfectly, and everlastingly. I cannot even begin to estimate the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of Christ. A powerful expression of that love is what the scripture often call the grace of God, the divine assistance and endowment of strength by which we grow from the flawed and limited beings we are now into exalted beings of truth and light until we are glorified in truth and know all things. It is a most wondrous thing, this grace of God. Yet it is often misunderstood. Even so, we, we should know about God's grace if we intend to inherit what has been prepared for us in His eternal kingdom. To that end, I would like to speak of grace. In particular, first, how grace unlocks the gates of heaven. And second, how it opens the windows of heaven. First, grace unlocks the gates of heaven. Because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and because there cannot any unclean thing enter in the, in the kingdom of God, every one of us is unworthy to return to God's presence. Even if we were to serve God with our whole souls, it is not enough, for we would still be unprofitable servants. We cannot earn our way into heaven. The demands of justice stand as a barrier, which we are powerless to overcome on our own. But all is not lost. The grace of God is our great and everlasting hope. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the plan of mercy appeases the demands of justice and brings about means unto men that they may have faith unto repentance. Our sins, though they may be as scarlet, can become white as snow. Because our beloved Savior gave himself a ransom for all, an entrance into his everlasting kingdom is provided unto us. The gate is unlocked. But the grace of God does not merely restore us to our previous innocent state. If salvation means only erasing our mistakes and sins, then salvation, as wonderful as it is, does not fulfill the Father's aspirations for us. His aim is much higher. He wants his sons and daughters to become like him. With the gift of God's grace, the path of discipleship does not lead backwards, it leads upward. It leads to heights we can scarcely comprehend. It leads to exaltation in the celestial kingdom of our Heavenly Father, where we, surrounded by our loved ones, receive of His fullness and of His glory. 
all things are ours, and we are Christ's. Indeed, all that the Father hath shall be given unto us. To inherit this glory, we need more than an unlocked gate. We must enter through this gate with a heart's desire to be changed. A change so traumatic that the scriptures describe it as being born again. Yea, born of God, changed from our worldly and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming his sons and daughters. Second, grace opens the windows of heaven. Another element of God's grace is the opening of the windows of heaven through which God pours out blessings of power and strength, enabling us to achieve things that otherwise we would be far beyond our reach. It is by God's amazing grace that his children can overcome the undercurrents and quicksands of the deceiver, rise above sin, and are perfected in Christ. Though we all have weaknesses, we can overcome them. Indeed, it is by the grace of God that if we humble ourselves and have faith, weak things can become strong. Throughout our lives, God's grace bestows temporal blessings and spiritual gifts that magnify our abilities and enrich our lives. His grace refines us. His grace helps us become our best selves. In the Bible, we read of Christ's visit to the home of Simon the Pharisee. Outwardly, Simon seemed to be a good and upright man. He regularly checked off his to-do list of religious obligations. He kept the law, paid his tithing, observed the Sabbath, prayed daily, and went to the synagogue. But while Jesus was with Simon, a woman approached, washed the Savior's feet with her tears, and anointed his feet with fine oil. Simon was not pleased with this display of worship, for he knew that this woman was a sinner. Simon thought, if Jesus didn't know this, he must not be a prophet, or he would not have let the woman touch him. Perceiving his thoughts, Jesus turned to Simon and asked a question. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. One owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when they both had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered that it was the one who was forgiven the most. Then Jesus taught a profound lesson. Seest thou this woman? Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loveth much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Which of these two people are we most like? Are we like Simon? Are we confident and comfortable in our good deeds? trusting in our own righteousness? 
Are we perhaps a little impatient with those who are not living up to our standards? Are we on autopilot, going through the motions, attending our meetings, yawning through gospel doctrine class, (laughs) and perhaps checking our cell phones during sacrament service? Or are we like this woman? who thought she was completely and hopelessly lost because of sin. Do we love much? Do we understand our indebtedness to Heavenly Father and plead with all our souls for the grace of God? When we kneel to pray, is it to replay the greatest hits of our own righteousness? Or is it to confess our faults? plead for God's mercy, and shed tears of gratitude for the amazing plan of redemption. Salvation cannot be bought with the currency of obedience. It is purchased by the blood of the Son of God. Thinking that we can trade our good works for salvation is like buying a plane ticket and then supposing we own the airline or thinking that after paying rent for our home, we now hold title to the entire planet Earth. If grace is a gift of God, why then is obedience to God's commandments so important? Why bother with God's commandments, or repentance for that matter? Why not just admit we're sinful and let God save us? Or to put the question in Paul's words, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's answer is simple and clear. God forbid. Brothers and sisters, we obey the commandments of God out of love for him. Trying to understand God's gift of grace with all our heart and mind gives us all the more reasons to love and obey our Heavenly Father with meekness and gratitude. As we walk the path of discipleship, it refines us, it improves us, it helps us to become more like Him, and it leads us back to His presence. The Spirit of the Lord our God brings about such a mighty change in us that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Therefore, our obedience to God's commandments comes as a natural outgrowth of our endless love and gratitude for the goodness of God. This form of genuine love and gratitude will miraculously merge our works with God's grace. Virtue will garnish our thoughts unceasingly and our confidence will wax strong in the presence of God. Dear brothers and sisters, living the gospel faithfully is not a burden. It is a joyful rehearsal, a preparation for inheriting the grand glory of the eternities. We seek to obey our Heavenly Father because our spirits will become more attuned to spiritual things. 
vistas are open that we never knew existed. Enlightenment and understanding come to us when we do the will of the Father. Grace is a gift of God, and our desire to be obedient to each of God's commandments is the reaching out of our mortal hands to receive this sacred gift from our Heavenly Father. The prophet Nephi made an important contribution to our understanding of God's grace when he declared, We labor diligently to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. However, I wonder if sometimes we misinterpret the phrase, after all we can do. We must understand that after does not equal, does not equal because. We are not saved because of all that we can do. Have any of us done all that we can do? Does God wait until we have expended every effort before he will intervene in our lives with his saving grace? Many people feel discouraged because they constantly fall short. They know firsthand that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. They raise their voices with Nephi in proclaiming, My soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I'm certain Nephi knew the Savior's grace allows and enables us to overcome sin. This is why Nephi labored so diligently to persuade his children and brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. After all, that is what we can do. And that is our task in mortality. When I think of what the Savior did for us leading up to that first Easter Sunday, I want to lift up my voice and shout praises to the Most High God and His Son, Jesus Christ. The gates of heaven are unlocked. The windows of heaven are opened. Today and forevermore, God's grace is available to all whose hearts are broken and whose spirits are contrite. Jesus Christ has cleared the way for us to ascend to heights incomprehensible to mortal minds. I pray that we will see with new eyes and a new heart the eternal significance of the Savior's atoning sacrifice. I pray that we will show our love for God and our gratitude for the gift of God's infinite grace by keeping His commandments and joyfully walking in a newness of life. In the sacred name of our Master and Redeemer, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Our beloved Heavenly Father, it is with awe and a profound sense of gratitude that we come to the conclusion of this session of General Conference on this Easter Sunday. We thank Thee for Thy Son, our Savior and Redeemer. We thank Thee that because of Him we have hope, that because of Him we can be cleansed and renewed. We are grateful, Father, for prophets and for those general officers of the Church who have spoken to us today. Wilt Thou please bless us with greater faith? Help us to know Thy will. Help us to be true and faithful. Help us to go forward and do that which we have felt and heard. We are so grateful for all that we have, for the great membership that we enjoy in Thy Church. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. This has been a broadcast of the 185th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music was provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited.
paradise. From the director of the Saratov approach. It isn't safe to be here any longer. Then we'll leave the country. And the producer of Saints and Soldiers. Revelation doesn't come when we are hiding in the shadows. LDS Living calls Freetown a thrilling story told in beautiful detail. Freetown. See it this Wednesday in select theaters across the U.S. Rated PG-13. Seeing that check engine light is like getting a penalty flag. It hurts. Unless you take your car to Larry H. Miller Chevrolet Provo, not only will you get quality, affordable service, you'll also have access to our complimentary snack bar and free internet access. And to make things even easier, we'll provide a complimentary car wash with your service and free shuttle to work or home. It's the kind of treatment you only get when you find new roads at Larry H. Miller Chevrolet Provo, two blocks west of the stadium, or at LarryHMillerChevroletProvo.com. Driven by you. With all the great venues in Utah to hold a youth conference, a family reunion, or a company party, one destination you may not have considered is Snowbird Ski and Summer Resort. Snowbird has structured turnkey activities to make any conference, reunion, or party a success. With world-class lodging, food, and recreation, you might think that Snowbird is too expensive, but the opposite is actually true. Snowbird can work with your group's budget to ensure a stay packed with adventure, from hiking through some of Utah's most beautiful scenery to hosting a guest speaker in one of Snowbird's many private meeting rooms or enjoy